Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 9, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Fred Bach Miller, Manager of Engineering at Facilities Management UCI, the man on the water action plan detail, will lead anteaters toward reducing their water footprints. And afterward, we'll be treated to the whole package deal about commencement addresses. Dr. Susan Jarrett, Professor of Rhetoric at UCI's School of the Humanities, will take up the art, the history, and the method of the commencement address. We'll examine some very particular examples, call it a duel, between George W. Bush's 2002 address at West Point and Barack Obama's address at UCI last year. And helping me is my co-host this morning. Join me once again, UC Berkeley student and local resident, Helen Kirkby. Good morning. Good morning, Helen. It's good to have you back. And training starts in just a couple of weeks, but we, we've got to jump on that. So we get you on a long, illustrious political affairs hosting career. Well, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. The following interview is an expanded public service announcement targeting all you anteaters toward reducing your water footprints. Our first guest this morning is Fred Bachmiller, Manager of Engineering at Facilities at UCI. As I said, the man on the water action plan detail, that's his day job. Fred Bachmiller has been serving since 2012 as a board of director on the Mesa District. This is a district encompassing the west side of Costa Mesa and portions of Newport Beach. As a board member, Director Bachmuller focuses on long-term planning for the future of Mesa water and its infrastructure. With his sights on his successors, Fred has been a regular guest lecturer in UCI's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, a mentor in the Da Vinci Academy program Newport Beach, Newport Harbor High School, and a board member of the Youth Employment Service. He completed his bachelor's degree at the California Maritime Institute and various certification at UCI and Harvard along the way thereafter. He joins us in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Fred Bachmiller. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, staring down at all the anteaters, both on the main campus as well as the medical center, is the Water Action Plan and its attendant water programs. Who's generated these? These items came from mostly staff and some from our student interns and many from the housing staff as well. So it's a cooperative group comprising facilities management staff, campus and environmental planning staff, design and construction services staff, student interns, uh, and the student housing organizations. These are the largest water consumers. We've also reached out to the University Hills community and to the Irvine community at large. So the more people that are preparing this plan, the more have ownership, the more the net, the larger the network, uh, the, the better the likelihood that this water plan is going to take hold and people run with it. Yes. Well, that's, that's great. I'm, I had uh, David Feldman from School of Social Ecology, the urban planning uh, department there, was on recently, and he talked about the importance of that kind of bottom-up 
contribution uh, in the model he's looked at in how successful Australia has uh, dealt with their millennial drought. So it sounds like your water action plan has a lot uh, to to incorporate in those kinds of aspects. Well, uh, let's let's talk. It's not just running the tap. Let's tell us about uh, how our choices result in water consumption that increase the the state's electric natural gas usage so it's not we're not just watching what's coming out of the spigot it's the the water is drawn down from all the choices we make every living sleeping moment yes everything we buy has a water footprint everything we eat has a water footprint all of the things that we do every day use water to a certain or greater or lesser extent simply driving your car to work uses water and the processing of the oil used to put in the tank on the car Buy a more efficient car, use less oil, use less water making that oil. So you wouldn't notice that that is the way to do it. On the campus, much of the water is consumed automatically and out of sight of people. For example, the toilets flush automatically. You don't know how much you, how, how it is or what you do, but that's, that's what happens. There's use in laboratories where people use once through cooling to cool an experiment and run the water down the drain. And there are better, less expensive alternatives. They're just not necessarily widely known. One of our water action plan goals is to make such things more widely known. Other things happen is that water gets left on. And we've had a quite some time now a site that you can text photos and water issues, anything you see, water at uci.edu. We've received a number of photos from people and they've been very informative. We see a lot of photos of sprinklers running and things of that sort. What's really helpful is if we find things inside buildings because the staff can't be everywhere at all times, then much easier. But you've talked about who's contributed to this, and Helen, jump in any time because you, are, uh, you, you also have probably a water action plan at UC Berkeley, but you're also a University Hills resident. So this is a, a, and, and the idea here, folks, it's not just... Uh, Jeff's jurisdiction here, but it's it's where we take it away uh, to everywhere we're going, uh, whether or not we're anteaters. So, but uh, so the target then are you getting? Are you working with administration to make uh, let's call it better choices to reconfigure infrastructure? Are you talking with staff? It's students residing on the campus. Who's your target? Our target is everyone who uses water on the campus. That's the goal. Everyone who, everyone who uses water in whatever way they use it, to the extent that they can control it, needs to be reduced. Okay. So then uh, the, the MAPS goal, what would that be, the, the, the Water Action Plan? The WAP, not the MAP. <laughs> the WAP. The WAP is the goal is to reduce the campus water usage by 20%. From what baseline? From right now, it's a baseline of... 2005 to 2007 that was chosen based on the 20 by 2020 plan the uh, now we have the emergency water order and we're hoping to be able to reduce by more than 20 percent 25 percent Irvine Ranch Water District as a whole has to reduce their consumption by 16 percent and as you may know the governor's uh, water emergency declaration resulted in mandatory water reductions for the state's water agencies and those rates varied quite a bit some are in the club 36 as we call it where they have to reduce 36 percent then others are in the lower bracket irvine ranch because of good water conservation plans in the past has a smaller reduction only 16 percent they're our water provider to the campus 
So what's your feeling when you're in these meetings with uh, with management about how uh, how uh, attentive where are they ahead of the game are they where are they they they're glad to see you there or what what's what what happens in those meetings since we can't sit in there with you in those meetings Irvine has been progressive in water conservation the since district. the nineteen the yeah. the ranch water district. well the Irvine Ranch Water District and also the campus has okay. been progressive in water conservation <laughs> since the nineteen sixties. We're one of Irvine Ranch Water District's largest customers, and we have been using recycled water on this campus since the nineteen sixties. Oh, I didn't know him that far back. Wow! And it was basically part of the setup we had with Irvine Ranch Water District. We have a water agreement that dates back to the foundation of the campus. And it's been amended over time, and it includes the recycled water component. We really began to use it a lot in earnest in the early 1970s, and it's been expanded since then. And so we have been in the forefront of water conservation through recycled water. The next step is reducing the amount of potable water that's used so that we can't, for irrigation, that's our largest single target. Most of the campus is irrigated with reclaimed water, however, the largest... uh, areas where we still have potable water irrigation are the private homes in University Hills and certain areas of housing, notably most of Verano housing and parts of Middle Earth are still irrigated with potable water. Well, that's very interesting because I think uh, University Hills residents have been under the impression that it was the recycled water, but um, that's very important what you bring up. Uh, well, this sets that one straight. Yes, there are public areas in University Hills, the the public areas are irrigated with reclaimed water. There were some small areas that were potable, but they are converting those now to reclaimed water. It's an excellent project by the management of the University Hills. However, inside the private lots where oh, people that, have yes. houses, those, That's are, been known. Okay, those are irrigated with potable water. And interestingly, if you consume water, you consume it indoors and outdoors. If you consume it indoors, it goes down the drain and goes into the water recycling plant at Irvine Ranch Water District on Mitchelson. If you consume it on your ground, it evaporates up into the air and may or may not fall back down in this area as rain. Right now, it hasn't been falling so often as rain. Right. So what we like to say is reduce outside. Reducing inside is good. Reducing outside is much better. Okay. That's that's vital. Vital, vital point. Well, um, so... You've talked a little bit in preparation here that that there's there's adjustments that can be made, technological adjustments. Whether you know the kind of flow coming out of our various spigots, uh, it commodes the, the the shower and that kind of a thing. That's one choice and uh, response. And you've also talked about more where the larger share of water conservation comes from adjusting our perception of how much water we're using. Why don't you talk to us more about that? Well, here's a classic one. When you flush a toilet, the water use varies. If you have a really old toilet that's inefficient, that's never been retrofitted pre-1992, might be as much as seven gallons of flush. Wow, that sounds a lot. Then if you look at a typical sprinkler head, your typical fan spray sprinkler head in your backyard might emit three to four gallons per minute. So if you water for 15 minutes, you've just put on 45 gallons of water out of that one sprinkler head. How many sprinkler heads do you have? Let's say 10. And a lot of that's hitting the sidewalk. Much of it is hitting the sidewalk or going, or in a certain amount of it, it's just evaporating into the air and is not ever hitting the plants. 
So you might run that, say, 10 sprinkler heads, 3 gallons a minute, 15 minutes. You just used 450 gallons of water. Wow. Or, or about 400 flushes of a high-efficiency toilet. So the key there is the perception of how much water is being used. People just are very poor judges of volume. It's very hard to tell how much you're really using when you're spraying out those fans because you just you just don't know. Well, you're at a water district board. Um, maybe I, I, I've not. Well, we don't get the same kind of water bill. The University of Hills residents, where it's uh, not broken down, it's not itemized. But has uh, the water have water districts in general posted? bar charts of how much water you're losing per per spigot you're using water districts vary in how they put the information on the bill okay. most water districts have websites that will tell you how much water a particular thing use yeah and then on your bill they'll give you a comparison usually you'll get a year's worth of bills right. they'll show you and then they'll it's show aggregated. you how much money how much water you've used per thing then we have one meter very difficult to tell but I mean a bar a chart that says this is this is how much a sprinkler head will use per minute. This is how much conventional toilet, new toilet, conventional uh, shower head, new shower head. Something that could be added to the bills. It's an excellent idea. I know it's typically available on the, their water conservation websites. Those kinds of things, but, staring, but typically not yeah. par- not staring you in the face. And I know the Mesa Water District has put out such kind of information on in the billing insert in their water district news from time to time. The bill paper and things, when you get a paper bill, and a lot of people don't get paper bills anymore, they get online or electronic. When you get the paper bill, they print up the bill form, and then you've got a million sheets of bill forms. So when you want to change the masthead on that, then you've got to go and redo that. So a lot of agencies don't change their format very often on that. I could see a very effective way is in a newsletter or an insert giving people this is how much this uses would be actually simpler and easier for the district to implement. Okay. Quarterly, maybe. It's a new Quarterly, season. Yeah. It's an, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at uh, water meters all around the world at KUCI.org. My guest hostess is... Helen Kirkby, she's she's also voiceless for a moment. We'll, we'll get, she'll have something to say here anytime. And our guest today is Fred Bachmiller. He's manager of engineering at facilities management at UCI and also a board director member on the Mesa Water District. We're talking about the water action plan at UCI, and we're going to just keep tinkering with our perceptions and up the ante on our ownership of every choice we make as consumers of anything uh, of how to reduce our water footprint. So how do you think we're doing? How is the campus doing in response to the water action plan and the educational efforts? Water action plan and the educational efforts in particular, I'd like to give a big shout out to Ann Krieghoff of our organization. The sustainability program. The sustainability program for really getting the behavior aspect. The behavior aspect is the hardest thing to change, and she has done a great job of outreach and providing graphs and data, which are hard to extract and create uh-huh. because we have a very simplified water metering system here on campus, and so it's been an excellent job on her part to get housing. Housing is an enthusiastic partner with us and this, as is University Hills Management. They've been an excellent partner with us and very enthusiastic. We've done quite well, actually. And indeed, our campus 
had already achieved the 20% reduction by 2020. When was that? We had achieved it two years ago. Wow. And the key will be maintaining it through to 2020 as the campus continues to grow and add students. Right. The water quantity is fixed. It's not per capita. It's a fixed number. So we want to that overall you know yes it is per capita but it it's also we want to maintain that 20 by 2020 well the responsibility is right on your shoulders though that, that being the leading researching institution uh, one of several in southern california and the leading research institution in orange county it's the mantles on all of the campus to mm-hmm. to be the best possible model yes so i'm thinking um with this adaptivity uh i'll I'll get to interactive. That's where we're going to head. But I'm just trying to think of um, how we're uh, rethinking. uh, I I was, to my horror, I was striking up a conversation with a manager of one of the residential complexes uh, on campus. And she was saying, uh, especially some foreign students, they're paying a bigger room and board and fees and tuition here on campus. And she was saying some of them were clocking up to four showers a day to make their you know, make ring out the money uh, for the use of their the, all the fees they're paying, and so I thought, uh, how how do you see, uh, Fred, the the adaptive aspect of the consumers, where we're 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 sort of you know fr- we're, I, they call it lawn shaming in suburban settings, but sort of changing how we look at uh, how long we're in the shower and how uh, how shiny that car is that's parked outside. Well, there's a lot there in that question. I hadn't heard of the students using four showers a day. It's a tragedy. And when one comes to a particular place, the norm, at least, that I understand is one adopts the expected behavior in the place you're at. And I think that providing information to our guests from other areas who might who might be behaving in it, and I have no evidence other than the anecdote you provided, that this is in fact occurring, but let's just say that it is, that a means to address it would be a informational instruction at the at the start of the term, that the norm and expectation of how to do this is that we live in in a community that is permanently. We are never going to be water abundant in Southern California. We are always in an era where we must bring water from elsewhere, either from Northern California, the Colorado River, or some people are talking about desalinating the ocean. The key here is that Southern California in and of itself cannot support the current consumption in the population with the rainfall that falls here. Simple as that. It's just not and our current method to do that. And the Norman expectation is for everyone to be watertight and to be showering and using water efficiently and not wasting it. It's also part of our state constitution that there shall be no wasteful use of water. I, I, that I didn't realize. Yeah. Well, how about like a, a, a water drop stuck on the shower, all the shower tiles, water-wise, you know, I, some kind of reminder about What's uh, what's going on in that shower? <laughs> Anything that could get, get the information across. Where I'd the support. spigot is. Yeah, right. Right there. Well, um, is there is there an interactive part then? Uh, you talked about uh, how many people have been involved in the water action plan. That that was an interactive part. But is there? Are oh, oh yes, there is. I there is a special uh, message that you're you're finding. Uh, it gets getting the job done um, about texting. Where, yes. where you see it's going on. Yes, please text to water 
at uci.edu, and there is a and send your your photos of what uh, what you consider to be problems. Anything that uh, we'll take any photos you have. All right, and how is that working so far? Or is it's it just been, new? It's uh, been out for quite some time, and unfortunately, maybe we haven't gotten the message out as we much as we'd hope. But this is our great opportunity here, so. Please send in the information, and it's been working very well. Whenever we get those things, we dispatch people to take a look at them and figure out what's going on. Water at uci.edu. Couldn't be simpler. Yep, very simple. Longer range. So is there anything comparable to this, Helen Kirkby, at the the UC Berkeley campus? Um, Well, at the UC Berkeley campus, we're definitely not as ambitious as this program. Um, There is a, a water action plan to reduce consumption, but I think it's 10% of 2008 levels by 2020, um, as opposed to 20% or even up to 36%. You said some um, institutions were mandated to cut 36%. Um, So right now we're just struggling to maintain that level. We're not really working on um, cutting back that level. Um, But I think what you were saying with the students, a lot of students uh, who are living in the dorms, they are not paying utilities for probably the only year or two in their lives. So that's, um, I think that's a big part of the problem is it's just they don't feel like it's their responsibility, but I think a, a moral obligation, we, it needs to be instilled upon them to to say this is not just, you know, what you're paying on the bill. This is the world that you're going to inherit. So I think that's important. So do you see that the peers have any kind of a, an, uh, um, I don't want to call it snitching. I'm, I'm, I think monitoring is the word to use it. Some kind of peer pressure, peer spigot pressure. So yeah. is that, does that ever happen? Have you ever sort of, like, come on, I mean, I'm Berkeley, so, you know, it's so progressive and all that. But no, is anybody, do you think the culture of students are willing to say, man, you know, already enough of this running shower today? Um, I think people like to talk about the drought as, you know, a political topic to discuss, but um, not really. Not the personal. Translating into action or personal, their own personal conservation, um, especially in Northern California. I don't see drastic personal cuts like cutting shower time or things like that um unfortunately i just don't really see that okay well jeff that's vital data for you to see here how that's how it's uh, water hitting the tile that boots on the ground <laughs> bare, <laughs> bare feet on the tile i guess it is so it, it, any other interas active aspect besides the the texting to water at uci.edu that you'd like to to leave with that you can call on, or that, or are you uh, open for more ideas? That at, at water dot at uci dot edu could be a, a format for a platform for accepting some other suggestions from people. Absolutely, it's not just see a water problem. Send in your suggestions. We take anything suggestions you can come up with. We really appreciate the help because we get great ideas from people. All right, well, Jeff Bachmiller with the Mesa Water District and engineer at. UCI's uh, facilities management. I want to thank you for being on. We'll we'll be, stay tuned, folks, for uh, some PSAs that we're going to be looping uh, on Radio KUCI in the the near future. I'm hoping. And thanks for coming by with all your plans, your meetings today. It's really been a pleasure to have you on. Been a lot of fun. Thank okay. you very much. We'll see you yeah. back soon. Take care. All right. Well, we're going to be back after a short station break with Susan Jarrett who is a humanities professor of rhetoric here at UCI. We're going to talk about commencement speeches. All right, stay tuned.
welcome back to the show. I thought it would be interesting to dissect the time-honored ritual of commencement addresses. It's our good fortune that we can draw our quite on our highly qualified next guest, UCI Humanities, Dr. Jer Susan Jarrett, Professor of Rhetoric, to start with Greece and end with a duel of sorts between George W. Bush's 2002 West Point Address and Barack Obama's 2014 Anteater Address. Dr. Jarrett's research interests include histories of rhetoric, ancient Greek rhetoric, rhetorical theories, feminist theory and pedagogy, gender and writing, writing program administration, composition, pedagogy. She was prized with and completed her term as a Borchard Foundation Scholar in Residency, Chateau de la Bretèche, and received a major President's Academic Enrichment Award at Miami University in Ohio, along with, a, I will call it, the biannual string of awards, honors, and grants. Among her extensive and wide-ranging publications, of particular note are, and I'm going to list them so you know just how lucky we are to have her on this topic, Rhetorical Education and Student Activism, George W. Bush's West Point graduation speech, June 2002, and we can refer people to that that extended publication online. Uh, it's text and analysis she gives on Voices of Democracy, the U.S. Oratory Project. Rhetorical power, what really happens in politicized classrooms, as well as a good deal about sophism, the foundation of debate. And I just want to mention one of the most recent publications is An Imperial Anti-Sublime, Aristides Roman Oration. Her skill in oratory, no doubt, has served her as recent department chair of comparative literature and current chair of the Department of Classics. She completed her bachelor's, her master's, and PhD all in English at the University of Texas at Austin. Bravo. She joins Helen Kirkby and me in studio today. Welcome, Susan Jarrett, to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. It's very nice to be here. Well, you are the woman of the hour, the week, the 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 month here. I, I know you would like to give us a whole week of lectures <laughs> on what we're going to ask you about. Uh, the law school, as I said, the medical school ceremonies are over, and we have it's, it's uh, actually it's a different uh, lineup of uh, speakers for the commencement addresses this year, uh, and I'm, I'll comment on that at a later date. But we'd, uh, we're going to start out though with the beginnings of this form of oratory, the, the, the commencement address. How, do, how was it shaping up in the ancient Greek in ancient times? ancient Greece, yes. Well, in the 5th and the 4th centuries, in Athens particularly, it was a very, very um, logocentric cu culture. That is, they loved language, they loved to speak, um, and it was also the foundation of democracy. So more and more people were... Um, allowed into public speaking realms. Um, and later on, as we get into the fourth century, Aristotle formulates how all this worked. And he uh, tells us that there were three genres of speaking, primarily. One of them, deliberative. Those are political orations. That's what happens now in legislatures and so on. People make policies. Another one is legal. So we have people in courts, because now in the democracy, you can bring an action against somebody. It's not just the king deciding, you know, what happens. Uh, but the third is the ceremonial speech. So there were certain occasions. Uh, they didn't have commencement addresses in ancient Greece. Um, schooling was done quite differently. But they did have occasions on which people were allowed to speak. And um, they spoke in praise of great people. And one of the most interesting ones 
a little bit darker topic is the funeral oration. So um, they had a state funeral oration every year. It was kind of along the lines of praising the unknown soldier. They buried all the soldiers who had uh, fought for Athens in that year in a common burial site. And they um, uh, named some famous person to give this oration. So um, it's it does some of the same things that a commencement speech does. That is, it brings the whole community together. It celebrates and confirms the values of the community. It it brings us. It tells us all. It gives us a mirror of what our culture is and what the values of our culture are. Um, of course, for the commencement address, um, it's much more positive. You know, it's looking at um, young people at a certain point in their life and praising what they've done and giving them suggestions and um, ideas about how they should conduct their lives later. So um, so it's a similar, it's called in Greek, it's called epideictic. It means you point to something and you show what it is. And that's the point of the speech. But what is interesting about these things, especially when you have somebody like a president um, giving a speech, is that there's always another layer of um, intent and meaning. And uh, we can talk about that for Obama's speech last year. Okay, but before you do that, let's go all the way back to many centuries ago. And you said it's a darker topic, but was the tone dark in that funeral oratory? Or was it sort of a kind of, it, it was, was mobilizing and ga- gathering people forward? Or Yes, yes, you're right. It's, uh, it is energetic and positive because, of course, in order to get people to put their lives on the line and fight and die... Uh, you know, and to give their children, the parents to give up their children to do this, you have to put a really positive spin on it. So this is patriotism, right? It's um, we honor the people who serve uh, serve us, you know, in war. So the most famous one is really quite positive. It's by Pericles. You've probably heard of him. Really, really. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> really great figure. He was a general himself, so that gave him an extra kind of ethos, is what we call it, you know, a particular standing. Um, so uh, his speech, his funeral oration, it was recorded or perhaps created, we don't really know, by a historian called Thucydides who wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars. Right. And so he encased a lot of speeches into his histories, and this is one of the most valuable and precious and interesting ones because it gives us a really full example of this genre. And yes, it's very positive. He says Athens is an education to all of Greece. It's a beautiful city. We we care about public life. We care about private life. We care about arts. And we have a a great passion for defending our city. So it's it's a it's a really and it's about democracy too. You know, the Athenians did not have a constitution. They didn't write down these principles, so we just have to extract them from other places. And this speech is one of the places that we go to find out what the values of democracy were for the Athenians in that era. Well, you mentioned this epideictic speech, and uh-huh. that is the central aspect of what you talk about in George W. Bush's 2002 address to West Point and their commencement exercise. Right. So I'd like to take that up. I know this is a, a lecture topic that could go on. <laughs> you could probably have a, a, a graduate seminar on that. Indeed. So I, uh, you present this notion uh, in, in that's very central. And uh, let's have you talk about his view of truth as 
hierarchical, fixed, and resolute in his paternalistic structure that you called in your article. Oh this, my goodness, you really got into it, didn't I, you? <laughs> I, well, you got into it for us, but no, I and I have I remember I remember when it happened, mm-hmm. and I remember it creating a certain inevitability. And I know, and it was top down, and it was a tilt. I want to call it a little bit of a. Uh, I mean, it's not shooting in all directions. It was like he was shooting in the dark. It was a new doctrine. So you take that up in this lovely analysis. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, It was really a a great uh, opportunity to do this. As you mentioned, it was a a collaborative project funded by NEH, this Voices of Democracy. So a bunch of us got together and decided on major speeches that we were interested in, that we wanted to collect the speech text and then do a, an analysis on it. And um, and this was this is hard work looking at his speech because we can see the sort of uh, the shards of uh, the remnants at the wreckage uh, wrecked with this. Yeah, that's you put that really well. Yes, it's hard work, but it was oh, it's just delicious work too, though. Okay, I mean you re- to really dig into it. Right. Um, and you know we should mention that different people have different opinions about. Um, the Bush presidency and uh, the wars that he led us into. Um, but, um, and I was actually, as I wrote this, uh, I was advised by reviewers to kind of tone down what they saw as a somewhat agonistic or partisan uh, approach to Bush. So I tried to keep it rather neutral. But um, as as listeners will recall, um, Bush, uh, the Bush presidency was shaped by 9-11. And he... Um, took us to war in Afghanistan um, right after, um, in October 2001, right after that occurred. Uh, But as the months rolled on, he began, he and his advisors began conceiving of Iraq as uh, a a, project. A project, right. So this uh, speech um, was delivered in 2002. Only nine months after 9-11. Only nine months afterwards. And so there was the beginning, there were the beginnings of discussions about Iraq and Iraq as a source of evil, as he would put it, and as, and perhaps a place where terrorists were being harbored. And um, what goes on in this speech that's so notable to political scientists and, uh, and theorists, uh, and all, to all of us because it affected us all, is that uh, typically in European nations since the 17th century, uh, wars are considered just if they're conducted um, on the basis of a, an, a prior attack. A self-defending thing. Yes, a, self-def- a self-defense. That's called just war theory. And what Bush is doing in this speech is uh, laying the groundwork for a preemptive strike. That is, for a war conducted against somebody who has not attacked us, but whom we judge to be a threat Def- um, in some way. Defensive yeah. to aggressive. Right, right. And he carried this through uh, to into March 2003 when we... Uh, launched into a war against Iraq. So so it's a, uh, and you mentioned the idea of about hierarchical truth. Uh, a lot of people noticed this about his language after 9-11. Um, you know, we, there could have been many responses to those attacks, uh, and there were many responses, but his response was absolutely unqualified uh, condemnation of, of a force that he identified as a force of evil and that became associated, uh, linked with the Middle East, generally with Muslims, generally, um, and uh, so it was a uh, was very. There was no question in his mind about how to interpret 
that event. There was very little reflection. It was just a grand Manichaean, you know, division between good and evil. And I think you're looking at some places in that um, commencement speech where I bring up, I notice some of the same tendencies. Well, and because we're talking about commencement addresses, there's also there's the packaging, there's the 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 demeanor mm-hmm. that they bring to that, and um, I I don't know Helen what your impression was. It was after you were it was way before you were starting uh, to watch these uh, these kinds of things, but um, but in retrospect, you uh, re- retro viewing it, you might have an impression too. But there was I think a very non presidential smirk to his bearing. Oh, you think his manner overall? And in ter- in terms of what he brought, it was a very somber a kind of pivot he was making, but he opened with this very unpresidential, I think, bearing. And I and I will say that I, I know uh, my my listeners know my biases, but <laughs> I think uh, uh, on an objective analysis, I think that that bearing, uh, it said quite a bit about uh, it may if you look at the entire package, it it might lend the characterization more thoroughly of a of a, a the sort of high noon cowboy aggressive kind of a thing. Is how okay. how well thought out is this doctrine, this brand new doctrine of aggression? If we're going to open with this kind of wink with the smirk, yeah. with the joke yeah. and smirk about, I wasn't much of a student, and all you right. guys are getting out of class to right. go to this uh, ceremony. So. Well, that's interesting that you that you hear it that way. Um, I think another way we could look at it is to consider that it is conventional to open the commencement right. address by and, and making the- jokes and and referring to some of the lighter, funnier aspects of the students' uh, undergraduate experiences at the university. Obama does it, you know, as well. We'll bring that um, up. Yeah, <laughs> a, a little bit, not to dwell on, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but he does make a joke about his own lack of of. Uh, success as a student, you know, uh, and I I can't remember right now, does he re- remark on his own experiences in the military? I w- don't remember that he did, and, and uh-huh. even that would be a, a, an undermining feature of a head of state changing doctrines on a, an entire world. Exactly, because uh, his, his uh, career in the National Guard was under a shadow of, so I think this is what in rhetoric we would call an eloquent silence, if he doesn't mention that, on the occasion of congratulating these young West Point. For completing. Yeah, completing. What they started. And, and these, these uh, new young officers who are all, he's going to be sending them into a new war. So that's a very heavy burden, I would think. And um, so that another ele- elegant silence is about the UN in this change of doctrine. Ah, yeah. You, you mentioned. Yes, right, right. Um, now, he has disregard for any other decision-making bodies, uh, world decision-making bodies, he's he's really was really focused on America as the leading power, the the Pax Americana, as we might call it. His advisors. That's a reference to the Roman Empire. Called itself, um, ca- named its uh, success a Pax Romana, meaning a Roman peace. And so the irony there is that a Roman peace is sustained by constant war. And uh, some people would say that's the condition of a pox americana also a pox on all our houses oh, <laughs> another kind of pox so, so well for those of you who've just joined us you're listening to ask a leader on radio kuci 
FM in Irvine, streaming all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. My guest host is Helen Kirkby today, and with us is in studio is our guest, UCI Humanities Professor Susan Jarrett, bringing her rhetorical, analytical heft to examining what goes into and out of commencement addresses. And we're, we're uh, wrapping up a little bit uh, about what George Bush presented in his West Point 2002 commencement address uh, that I still want to say a few have you say a few more things out there was an incons some inconsistencies in his bringing his Christian ethic first and 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 wearing that mantle and uh, his readiness to strike out at adversaries mm-hmm Wow well, that's a rhetorical <laughs> uh, slam uh, yes, uh, you know we have a long history of a kind of muscular Christianity in the United States. Uh, so the onward Christian soldiers, and not just in the United States. I mean, of course, we've got the Crusades. So um, many people who of Christian faith have been able to uh, reconcile uh, militaristic activity with with Christianity. So it's you know religions are malleable, um, but he he definitely participated in that kind of um, characterization of himself as um, having faith, being a person of faith. And I don't think you can actually be a president in the United States if you don't wear that mantle. You know, I think it's one of the requirements. But um, but he, you know, it was part of his conversion. I think I speak about that in the biography there. Right. And that he used to be a kind of a playboy, you know, then had a had a conversion that was actually led by his participation in some fundamentalist religious activities, Bible reading groups, and so on. And Rarefied so, meeting with Billy Graham, I yeah, guess you said. Yeah. I didn't realize that, but it fits. Yes. So uh, so that's an important, important turning point in his life. So let's then pivot to that some years later. It was last year uh, at the commencement, the commemorative commencement address that President Barack Obama gave at the Anaheim Stadium, so it's a much, it's a very large audience there. Right. And so, and Helen was at the stadium. And were you? you were, I and was I as well. All three of us were there. <laughs> so we can all sort of really bear witness here. Uh, he covered a lot of bases, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, he had as just as large a speech staff as George Bush, so there, we're not dealing with any incomparables there. But I would like you to talk about that, and we can, Helen and I can uh, comment on that. Is what rhetorical slates of hand, uh, what kinds of devices and aspects would you like to, to bring to our attention? Well, I think we see the same um, introductory gestures in Bush and uh, Obama, the uh, jovial tone. It's, a, you know, it's a very happy occasion. In a way, I was just thinking about your invitation, which I really appreciate, and uh, how to characterize this speech. And I would say, you know, it's one of the easiest speeches to give and one of the most difficult speeches to make effective. It's easy because everybody is happy to be there. It really doesn't exactly matter what you say at a commencement address. Everybody's going to be very welcoming um, because it's such a joyous occasion. Um, and you know you're going to hear positive things about you and your family and your institution. But it's very difficult because people aren't very attentive and because the audience is so diverse. And so if you have a message like Bush and like Obama did, then you're not exactly sure how it's going to be received or whether people are really going to be listening at all. So that's when the other audiences come into play. And I think I mentioned that in the in the Bush analysis. So I think that's a feature of the Obama speech that um, perhaps for for some people was, was welcome. Um, he spoke about the environment and he linked his, um, his warnings about uh, climate change 
and his criticisms of uh, certain people in the Congress who don't seem to be willing to listen to scientists, uh, he brought these to bear at UCI. And there's a, there's a link, um, there's a logic to it, because we are a school that cares a lot about the environment and had just uh, received uh, some praise for our um, achievements, our sort of clean, green achievements. Yes. Well, I, I think it goes back even further when the first Earth System Science Department ever was established here. And that's what I thought oh. was incredible, is that he took stock at the commemorative address of the Nobel laureates that have come through UCI mm-hmm. of this d- creation of an Earth System Science not, not a pedagogy, but a, a research mm-hmm. uh, unit. Unit, thank you. And then, uh, and then, then proceeded to break down the audience. What was was the sort of the benefactors? And I and I know this personally. Jay Familieri uh, blogged later on about his head was spinning with all the references to the climate change research and mm-hmm. that was going on. It has and continues to go on at UCI. So anyway, the the audience would be the the let's say the management of of UCI. Uh, acknowledging what's happened here uh, academically, the, the the students who are going to send their heft forth and, and, and be mobilizing around the climate change and then to on to beyond the walls, like every every commencement address that's delivered by a political figure is to not just the leaders, policymakers, but I think the whole constituency, a message to all of them. And he, I, I couldn't have thought of a more elegant one theme for him to bring up than mm-hmm. that one to cover those bases. It's certainly, yes, there's a lot of, there's a logic to it. it definitely, Cute. Definitely made sense. And uh, so you're saying that you really appreciated the choice of the topic and the seriousness of it and the appropriateness of it for this particular audience. It was elegant. Yes. El- elegant in one fell swoop there. So. Yes. So and then there were, uh, we can talk about uh, the substance, but uh, and then I would like to, as all commencement addresses might or should do, uh, they're going to invoke some kind of theme for the the graduating class, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll just sort of to get your, your juices flowing. He he refers to the underrated. He closes with the underrated, the dreamers, the underdogs, the idealists, the fighters, the argumentative. He wants them to do the biggest things, and he and the 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 personages that he uh, wraps into that's the soldiers, the advocates, scientists, entrepreneurs, <coughs> altruists as antidotes to cynicism because he brought cynicism up a great deal so and he finishes with and I cannot wait to see what you do tomorrow I Mm -hmm. thought well if they don't have their outline ready (laughs) they have it now so Helen what did what did you think of the speech Um, personally I really sorry I really enjoyed the address Um, it was I thought it, it had a political message it had a takeaway which a lot of commencement speeches maybe sometimes don't. So it had a call to action, which I think was very successful. Um, but it, it was political, but it wasn't necessarily partisan. I don't think climate change should be a hugely partisan issue. I think people on both sides of the aisle could get behind that address and could support, you know, this is, you know, the youth of America is going to grow up to be the leaders of America. And this is an issue that you need to care about. Um, so I think that was a successful Thing. And I think his rhetorical strategies, I think his tone, it was, you know, it was lighthearted, but also serious where it needed to be. Um, so I think it was relatively successful. 
That's great. That's really good to hear. I'm glad. It's interesting to hear that you think climate change is not partisan. <laughs> I think it should not be partisan. Well, it, it should not yeah. be partisan. It's only partisan in our body politics. Exactly. It isn't, yeah. So I think yeah. that's, yeah. it was about the science. It's about what uh-huh. faculty have been uh-huh. doing, what the students could do. And it, yeah, right, I mean, right. it's just, I, it's a distortion in our, I think, in our, yes. our body politic that it's become a, a partisan sort of thing yes. as opposed to a, a science, scientific urgency yes. that we all have a part in. Well, I think, I think in, um, making these choices, he was following a pattern that many um, people do in commencement speeches, many presidents do in commencement, yes. using them as a platform to advance his policies. So we saw Bush doing that. We see him. Another famous one, I think I mentioned it in the Bush speech, is uh, Kennedy gave a commencement speech at American University in 1963 in which he uh, presented a case against uh, nuclear weapons. And that was the initiation of his argument that argument so that was really fresh and and interesting and powerful um that's interesting because it's doing the opposite of what bush was doing mm -hmm. it was a pivot back to Mm non-aggression oh yeah so so um yeah Yeah. um so what a couple of things that i think about um obama's about that speech is that i you know i really admire obama i voted for him i uh, agree with his position on climate change, and I think he's a uh, really, really excellent orator. Um, I had heard many of the things he said in that speech before, so it didn't sound fresh to me. It did not. It sounded canned. Okay. You know, so I I was disappointed. I wanted him to give us something new, um, so I just could hear him kind of slide into those same tonalities, those same uh, accusations. Uh, people who don't like Obama. And even people who do um, comment on his habit of uh, kind of finger wagging, you know, being the professor who's telling people what they're doing wrong. And I hear that tone when he's talking about the the um, uh, legislators who won't pay attention to the science. You know, it's it's part of our oppositional rhetorical field. You know, it's very very uh, people are fixed into their positions, and um, you don't make any progress that way. Um, and we've seen that in the Congress. It's just been very stalled. So as a rhetorician, um, and as a feminist rhetorician, I guess I would say, right? I'm really interested in hearing people who can open up um, the field so that to make it possible for somebody who doesn't agree with you to think, to think something different. And uh, that's a very utopian desire on the part of a rhetorician in the 21st century in the U.S. Uh, looking at political discourse. It just doesn't really happen. People tend to repeat. They get into positions. They repeat things over and over again. And even if I agree with them, I, it's a little bit frustrating as a rhetorician. So that was one of my thoughts. Um, another thought that I had, now I'm on my kind of critical mode here. but um, Please do. That's you why know, you're here. The, the rousing, and this, this has more to do with um, my field of study in the humanities. Um, so in that list of people that he names... The people that we need, we need scientists, we need dreamers, we need, um, who else does he mention Entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs. Altruists. Advocates. Yes. He doesn't say anything about reading, about writing. Um, He doesn't mention the humanities. So uh, that's one of the things that um, at UCI, I think we get quite a lot of emphasis on science, which is great. You know, that's one of our strengths. Um, we get emphasis in the social sciences, but um, the, I'm in the humanities, and I think the humanities are really important. They're especially important for dreamers, and they're important for activists. So why didn't he mention... Entrepreneurs benefit a lot from humanities. 
Yes, yes. Scientists so they benefit all dip from in. humanities. That's right. Medical students now are having the humed education. Ex- so. Exactly. We have a new initiative in medical humanities. So I would have uh, appreciated, I mean, he himself is a writer. You know, he wrote this memoir, uh, Dreams from My Father, which was just a beautiful book. Um, so that, that would have been nice. But um, so I think, I think people seem to be, the audiences I observed them seem to be generally positive about the speech. Um, well, he personalized it exceptionally in the uh-huh. beginning. His uh, a special assistant is a, a UCI grad right, with that, a sibling in the graduating class yes. and all of that. Yes. So he, he, I mean, we're about buddies by the time he's finished right. with the, the introduction. <laughs> and I think he finally learned how to say zot instead of zoot. Z- yeah. <laughs> well, I just want for a little kind of a press kind of nano detail here is I, I noticed with the press release for that address, it was it was looking set up as though it was a verbatim coverage, uh, a relay of his speech. The zoot 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 was in the press. They called it zot zot zot. So they uh-huh. they they edited that. Yes. So, but no, but it was a transcript. But so the transcript should have said zoot zoot zoot. But uh-huh. they always were a little bit uh, colluding with uh, getting yes. that correction in there. So I thought that's is that how that works? <laughs> so well, I. I want to pivot in the little bit of time remaining here is the lineup. It's kind of interesting for this year's speaking uh, the guest speakers for the commencement addresses. Now, other than Greg Luganus at the bioscience one, mm-hmm. we have uh, Henry Samueli with the Broadcom Corporation, who's he's just they've just sold that. Uh, Javier Palomares uh, is the CEO, uh, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Uh, there's the co-founder and uh, Creative Officer of Applied Minds is at the Physical Sciences and the School of the Arts. Well, there is a judge at the Social College Commencement, Michael Morheim, thank you, I hope I got that right, of Blizzard Entertainment, which is down the street from here, with your school, Humanities and the, uh, the Brent School of Computer Science, and Paul Mirage's own founder, uh, Paul Mirage, is going to be talking at mm-hmm. the School of Business. So. This looks like we're digging into the development office toolkit. Yes, kit. yes. This is another thing you can do with a, with a commencement speech. Is ka-ching, you can, ka-ching. Yes, right. You put it very well. <laughs> I right. don't know how memorable these are going to be. This looks like an IOU to everybody. Less. Well, you just never know. You go, and then you can be open-minded, and and perhaps these people had rhetorical skills, so they'll bring some things that led them to to be the successful people they are that will come out in the commencement speech, or they could be utterly banal and boring. You know, it's just kind of hard to say. I did want to mention um, a a commencement speech that I found really, really, I was thinking about this as you invited it. Um, I went to a commencement of a SAGE uh, private school here in the Up the hill from us. Up the hill. And Gary Trudeau, was the commencement speaker. He's a cartoonist. Uh, he drew the cartoon Doonesbury. He still is. He's just taking he, a lot of vacation between right, Sunday strips. Right. His twin sister, Margaret Trudeau, has children who are graduating from the school. So uh, that was the reason they got him. And his speech was delightful. He talked about... When how, was this one? Oh, it was several years ago. Okay. He talked about how he became an artist and how looking at the world through an artist's eyes can be valuable to you as you move through your life. And, um, you know, if Obama had done something like that, that would have been, I would, I would have thought that would have been more genuine than pulling in the names and data from UCI and then giving us his packaged, you know, climate speech. So, okay. 
Well, I, I, we're about to run way over with the show, and I'm, before I do that, I really, really want to thank you, Susan Jarrett, for coming oh. in. And, and I want to follow up. We can go, revisit this perhaps in another commencement season, what happened with our package here, or maybe some yes. other notable ones, yeah. and uh, come back to that. So I, I want to do that. So the City Hall tonight is going to have the second vote on the Irvine Living Wage Ordinance. It's a vote to repeal the ordinance. It's going to be in the earlier sides, 530 to, uh, tonight. And it's uh, now set at a minimum of of $11 per hour or $13 per hour for those not receiving health benefits or other job benefits. The practical effect of this uh, proposal will be to allow the hourly wage paid to hundreds of low-income workers to fall to the state minimum wage of about $9 an hour. This is how the original ordinance reads that would be repealed at the second voting tonight. It's to ensure that employees of city services contractors can earn an hourly wage that is sufficient to live with, with dignity and to achieve economic self-sufficiency. The use of city funds to create living wage jobs is intended to decrease poverty, increase consumer income, invigorate community businesses, and reduce the need for taxpayer-funded social service. Heads up, Irvine residents. It's on the line with tonight's final vote. You uh, might want to just check it out on the use, the uh, City of Irvine website. So I just want to formally thank, though, Susan Jarrett with the Department thank of you, Humanities Claudia. for being on the show today. And thank you, Helen Kirkby. Thanks, thank Helen. You. This is a real pleasure. Oh, I really enjoyed it. My, oh, mine, totally. So next week, we're going to have a continuation of Jeff Wasserstrom's commentary. It will be live, folks, on Contemporary China, really reading the tea leaves, I tell you. So uh, I want to thank everyone for listening and I want to congratulate all of you graduates. Congratulations to the class of 2015. And congratulations to you, Denali. <laughs>